you may have noticed that the fantasy genre and war often go hand in hand. Some stories glorify violence, while others force you to examine all sides of a conflict with brutal honesty. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author C.L. Clark. Their debut fantasy novel, The Unbroken, releases next week from Orbit Books. Sheree and I discuss post-colonial war narratives, editing audio short stories for Podcastle, and, of course, the secret behind Terrain's killer biceps. And now, the good part. Welcome to the Fantasy Entry. It's so great to have you here. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much, Travis. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, to start things off, I saw that you're kind of a pretty prolific traveler, at least compared to me. Uh, and since traveling has not really been a thing for the last year or so, uh, I'm hoping to kind of vicariously enjoy from your experience. So is there a place you've traveled to that stands out above the rest? Um, I was thinking really hard about this. And if I'm honest, all of the big places I've been to, they all stick out really sharply. Um, especially because over the last couple of years, I haven't lived statically in any one spot. Um, mm-hmm. Probably most consistently, I've been living in and out of London for spans at a time. But um, most recently, I've been thinking a lot about Taiwan, where I lived for a little over a year while I was teaching English, uh, because I picked up a few little vocal mannerisms from my students and one of them slipped out the other day. And so I've just been, I've, I've been really missing them a lot and really thinking about, about being in Taiwan, especially also because, you know, they're free now. <laughs> they're actually like getting to live their life. And I'm like, Oh man, what if I was still there? Yeah, that's great. I love that. But yeah, so to take you way, way back, uh, I'm always curious, and I like to ask people, uh, do you remember what first made you fall in love with speculative fiction? I do, actually. Like, very, very, very specifically. So, like, there were definitely books that I read and enjoyed as a kid that were clearly fantasy. But the sort of the moment that changed everything was when it was when I first discovered the Wheel of Time series. It was on accident. Uh, I was like... I don't know, I was like 12 years old, seventh grade, middle school, something like that. And as you know, this is an adult fantasy mm-hmm. um, series. And it was in the my Scholastic Book Fair catalog. It had been split into two books, um, The Eye of the World, the first book, split into two books and full of illustrations. And so I thought it was a kid's book, actually, like on purpose. And so I read through that book. And it was the only one that had been reissued in this way, this like split edition. Um, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I'm a very shy person, uh, even shyer when I was a kid. And, um, I refused to actually ask any of the booksellers for this book. So I was just looking in the kids section and never finding it. And so one day I finally, I got up my courage and I asked them. And so they like took me by the hand to the adult section and showed me the entire row of, Wheel of Time books. And so that was kind of the beginning of the end. Yeah, that's got to be a great feeling, especially if you didn't know it's what, like a 14 book series. (laughs) So that's always nice to know you have plenty of road ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, still kind of 
in the past, but moving forward a little bit, I saw that you completed an MFA. So mm. I don't think I've had a lot of guests who's actually done the official MFA program. So I'm curious, how has that affected or impacted your career as an author? This is a complicated question because okay. I liked a lot of things out of my MFA. I liked the, the professors, I liked the people, and I got a lot of opportunities, things that I specifically went back to school for because I really, I wanted to work in the arts field. I was, um, before I got my MFA, I was applying for jobs in libraries and I wanted to do some sort of, um, like essentially arts administration type things, but I wanted mm -hmm. them related to writing and it was easier to get internships if you were already in school and almost impossible if you weren't in school. And so I went to grad school and I got to be the associate director for a writer's conference. And if I wanted to, I could have worked on um, the Indiana Review, the a literary magazine. I got study abroad opportunities I wouldn't have had if I hadn't gone back to school. And most importantly, I had time to write. Like it was required of me and I I had a thesis to turn in. I had professors who were mentoring me through the process. That said, the craft classes themselves, um, I do not think it is necessary for someone to go to an MFA to learn how to write. I think you could go for lots of other reasons, but that is not one that you should go for. Yeah, you're sounding uh, a lot like me and explaining how I feel about my grad degree in engineering and how that's impacted my career. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because so many of them cost. So it's, um, yeah, that's really rough. Yeah, it's it's never as simple as saying, yes, it's a 100% thing that'll boost your career and skyrocket you to the next level. But there's a lot of value, I'm sure, as well. Mm -hmm. And then so I think you've actually mentioned this with the talk about Taiwan, but you've also taught writing in various shapes or form all over the world, I think. I was seeing uh, classes from several countries that were mentioned on one of your websites. Uh, so how did that come about and what kinds of things have you learned through teaching? Um, so in Taiwan, I mostly taught English, uh, like English as a second or foreign language. Um, but I did have a student who I privately tutored with creative writing. Um, and that was really awesome. And one of my other opportunities was with Indiana University. And one of my professors uh, is Nepali. And one of the study abroad opportunities that you could do is to go with him to Nepal and teach workshops for students. And so I went with him and we went to India and Nepal and taught a few different workshops there. And that was pretty amazing. And obviously I taught in the U.S. as part of my degree program. And I taught also for a summer camp, a gifted summer camp. And I really love teaching and teaching and mentoring in a sense with many subjects. Like I think it's also related to why I like personal training as well. But yeah, I think I'm kind of losing the thread of the question, but either way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And I mean, since you, it seems you've done so many different aspects of this whole writing gig, I know one of them that interested me was I saw that you're also one of the co-editors at Podcastle. So what exactly does that entail? Because I'm slowly starting to get a better understanding of what editors do, but the whole audio element seems to be a whole different game as well. Okay, so 
Can I pause real quick and then jump back? Because I remember something for the tail end of that question about what I learned. Sure. Teaching. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. Um, so the thing that I did, I did really learn, and I kind of have to relearn it every time I go into a class, um, is just about patience. I find that I'm so much more patient with my students than I am with myself. <laughs> And so like there's, there's this, this patience and grace that you extend to others that you probably aren't extending to yourself. And I was on this writing pedagogy panel the other day, actually, and I found myself talking a lot about teaching toward joy or encouraging my students to write towards whatever their joy is. Um, and so for me, a lot of the time that is science fiction or fantasy, but whatever makes you happy. If you like to write fan fiction or if you like to write, I don't know, some sort of crime novel or romance or anything, like if you enjoy it, you will do it. And if you do it, you will learn more. Um, I think there's definitely a correlation with joy and progress and process even. So yeah. You mean high literature and nonfiction textbooks are not the only valuable forms of writing? Uh, I think that is what I mean, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've never had any actual formal writing instruction or anything, but I hear from lots of people who have that, you know, they've always had that one memorable teacher who was like, oh, why are you writing science fiction or fantasy or something? Why don't oh, you yeah. try real writing? Definitely had a couple of those in my undergraduate writing career. It was hard. It was okay because I liked also writing realistic fiction um but it didn't come naturally to me certainly and I do sometimes regret it because I feel like I lost some valuable time I could have been using to practice writing the genre fiction stories that I started writing now I could have been doing it a long time ago if I had been able to learn how to write that kind of story because I don't think they're bad at all, um, the different branches of story, of fiction genres, period. But I do think they can be different. They have different conventions, different expectations. I was beating my head trying to learn how to do one that I didn't especially love, back to that joy idea, um, when I could have been working on something else. And I mean, now I found my place, so I'm happy. But Yeah, that's good. It's good that you wound up there eventually. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I am curious about the whole position at Podcastle because I know mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. I, I, I really enjoy podcasts and I really enjoy fantasy and science fiction and all of that. I mean, mm -hmm. I would not be doing a fantasy and science fiction podcast otherwise, right? Sure. But Podcastle, particularly for me, like, I think that was one of my introductions to fiction and podcasting. Uh, it's oh. the very earliest one that I can remember finding years ago. Uh, and so that, that's really cool that you're involved with that. That's so awesome. Um, I actually got involved a couple years ago. I have to count. I think I came on officially in January 2019, right after Khalida Muhammad. And it is, there's surprisingly a lot of work, like beyond just a magazine, because you've got to work with both the sound components and the textual components. Um, so we have a big staff, I mean, big as far as I can tell, based off of other other genre magazines, what they're working with. And we're spread across the other EA podcasts. So we're 
for Podcastle, for folks who don't know, we're definitely um, the primarily the fantasy wing only. Occasionally, we have some fantasy that blurs into like dark fantasy horror. But I am a scaredy cat, so I usually do not go <laughs> <laughs> for those stories. But um, so as far as what we do, what we get up to, we we've got the editing aspect, finding the stories. We have an awesome crew of slush readers. Um, and then Jen, who's my co-editor, and Setsu, they're the associate editor. We go through the stories that get pushed up to us from Slush. Luckily, uh, Jen and I, we've actually, we're really, um, we're really on par uh, with the kinds of stories we're really interested in seeing. And so we've made a really good team over the past couple of years. But then after we pick the stories, we kind of, we kind of divide them into who likes them the most or who picked them out and has like claimed them. And then we find narrators that suit. Sometimes they're people that we already know that we've already heard. Um, and sometimes we have to do brand new calls. Um, and part of it is finding the right narrator. Part of it is finding like, not just a narrator who sounds good, but a narrator who matches the representation of the story if possible we started asking our authors how they feel about what they want to hear from the the narrative. And if they don't care, then, you know, it's kind of like a like dealer's choice, but there's something really gratifying at being able to give the author the story as they have always imagined hearing it. And sometimes, you know, they want to read it themselves, which is also really awesome. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if this affects your how your decision process is on that, but didn't you start out as a narrator for Podcastle before you came on as editor? No, actually. Um, okay. That has actually been one of the secret little perks. Um, <laughs> I got to do more narrations when I came on as editor because then I get to say, oh, I love this story. I want to read it. Nobody else. Sorry. <laughs> So my first narration credits were already as uh, when I was an editor. And the first one was the first story I got to pick, which was Sudden Wall by Sarah Saab, which was originally published at Beneath Ceaseless Skies, I believe. And um, one of my favorite stories. Yeah, just mm, love that story. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And um, but I did publish a short story there before I, um, before I came on as editor. Yeah. I'm always interested in kind of seeing the behind the scenes on how that whole process works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this really has much of an impact on your writing, but since you do acquire and edit short fiction, I'm curious, like, has that changed what you look for in stories or, uh, has that sharpened your ability to find like what's compelling about a story? I think so. I, um, so I'm stealing this actually from my partner who is a short fiction writer, actually, like full disclosure, they are the author of that story. Okay. <laughs> but um, they're, they're a poet as well. One of the things they said was there's a moment in poetry that a lot of people call the turn it's kind of when a poem opens up and they called it a moment of aperture, like with a camera. And that always clicked with me, not just for poetry, but also for um, short stories, because a short story is, is often too small to explore the full range of a timeline of events. And 
I certainly don't feel like you have to. I think that you could, like, a, for me, a short story is about a moment when everything has changed and it doesn't have to be a big change, but there's some sort of moment of understanding for the reader, for the character, when, like, instead of everything closing off and, like, tying up, the story actually opens up to new possibilities, in a sense. And you just know that the character's never the same after that. Um, but the story doesn't have to keep going on. I uh, don't read nearly as much in the way of short fiction as I should, but everything that I have read, it it's a really, really different ballgame, I feel like, than novels and long-form fiction. Uh, and there's a lot to get from it, I think. Big time, big time. But yeah, so moving in a slightly different direction. So uh, you did say you were a personal trainer, and uh, I imagine you have a totally different perspective on the fitness industry than someone like me. Uh, so I did see on your website that uh, it says you're interested in studying the war narrative in the U.S. fitness industry. So can you elaborate on that? I'll admit I had never heard of that before. Uh, so, I mean... <laughs> So I actually studied this not in my like exercise science side of my life, but during my MFA, there was um, we took a war literature class. Well, I did, not everybody. I took a war literature class, and I found myself like I initially wanted to go in so I could explore the war narratives of fantasy. But when I got in there, I was also doing like. I don't know, P90X something at the time. And I was just like, oh my God. And like, it was like part of the CrossFit boom and I just couldn't stop seeing it everywhere. And it's just one of those things where, you know, how many workout programs do you know with the promise to make you a warrior or an elite warrior? <laughs> Battle ready, Spartan fit. Dur -dur 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 -dur. And um, it's, I've noticed it's distinctly, or at least it was initially distinctly American, but you know, we like to export our bad habits. So you're putting this patriotic violence or the ability to perform patriotic violence on a pedestal. And obviously this is like, you know, the fantasized version of soldiers, um, like sort of Ubermensch with, uh, well, I say that and that sounds like maybe it could be a different essay because uncoincidentally <laughs> probably uh most of these sort of uber warriors are also white so i feel like that that's uh there are a lot yeah. of things to be said about this uh, i actually did think about going to get a degree in american studies um just to look at the about war in the fitness industry and then i decided not to because wow yeah <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you can see it even in, uh, like, the fantasy movies and stuff. Like, I mean, look at Thor, you know. And then the fact that Thor slash Chris Hemsworth now has a fitness, like, a fitness app. We kind of venerate a certain type. I guess, to be fair to Chris Hemsworth, his is less warrior-themed and more, like, funny, goofy, whatever. But you can't really ignore where he came from to be known as this super fit guy. He's got a thunder warrior, boom, rah type, whatever. Yeah, and Marvel in general, at least, uh, the MCU is very much kind of war-focused and heavy on militarization and all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually, I have an essay coming out in April about war and fantasy and stuff, so stay tuned. Okay. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be really interesting. 
Uh, I know I kind of read through a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which it's, I mean, it's dead, but it, at the time it was a, um, an assignment for the class. We had to blog about our readings and I think it was just easier for the teacher to find it if we kept it on a blog, but it still exists. Um, okay. Well, uh, so <laughs> to follow up with a far more serious question than the whole war narrative in the U.S. fitness industry. So as a personal trainer, I know there's been a good bit of buzz over the incredible book cover art for The Unbroken <laughs> uh, and quite a bit of it specifically surrounding Touraine's impressive biceps. So in your professional personal trainer fitness opinion, what arm workout would Terrane have been doing to acquire those guns? Uh, so Terrane would keep it pretty old school. I didn't do too much research for this question uh, about what, what exercise would have been like in this fake era. But I think that they would keep it pretty old school, a lot of push-ups, pull-ups on some sort of apparatus and, you know, doing some sort of pack carrying with her drills. Um, and then like her best friend is this huge dude. And so I imagine that as they're wrestling around and sparring together, she did a little muscle from that too. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, kind of hard not to in that situation. And yes, I'm glad that you didn't do too much research on this question because <laughs> I would feel terrible if you told me, yeah, I spent hours trying to come up with a historically accurate program. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, you're here to talk about The Unbroken, and we haven't really dug into that yet. So I guess just to start things off with that, do you have a pitch for the story? Sure. Um, so The Unbroken follows Terrain, who is a very buff, conscripted colonial soldier who's loyal first to the Baladaran Empire, and then it's also about Luca, the Empire's princess. And her goal is to crush the rebellion so that she can get her uncle off of her throne. And so um, their paths cross, and Luca sends Terrain as an envoy to the rebels, and um, those once certain loyalties are now tested, and both women have to choose between you know, their duty, their destiny, uh, maybe a little bit of love. Mm, complicated, very complicated. <laughs> um, it's a bit dark for those who are looking for a fluffier, less complicated romance. This is not the book for you. It's a bit in the vein of The Trader Borrowed Cormorant for those who are familiar. Um, and I've also got some content warnings on the Unbroken page on my website for those who would like to see it. I will say, yeah, it is definitely uh, not a light, fluffy romance or uh, anything, I guess, in general, lighter tone. Uh, you tackle a lot of very heavy topics and some of it goes to some dark places. But yeah, so uh, I'm curious, even before we dig into the story, because I do want to dig into some of the actual content of the novel, but what's the story behind how you landed the book deal? <laughs> uh, so it's kind of cool, but we'd have to go back a little bit to, I think, like maybe 2016 or 2017, I think. I was querying and doing the pitch contests and stuff on Twitter, and um Got a lot of different, you know, different um, likes and stuff from agents, but I got one in particular from my current agent, Mary Seymour, um, at Kimberly Cameron Associates. And um, she read it and she's like, oh, this is really cool. I'll take the first 50 pages. Oh, this is really cool. But, and at the time, it was when California was having a lot of fires. It was California fire season. 
And she's like, I can't, I can't spend time on this. If something happens later and I'm open again, I'll let you know. Um, or you can resend it to me then. And so I just said, okay. And in between then and later, I get some revise and resubmits that I turn in. Those get rejected. I get requests for revise and resubmits again. And um, all in all, that year ends up being pretty much a bust for the query trenches. And I just kind of, I'd gotten so close, and I'd, but I'd gotten so many requests on the query itself that I knew that the query was fine, but the book was wrong. And I was just like, this is, my book sucks. This is the worst thing ever. I'm only going to rewrite it one more time. Because I'd rewritten it for those other uh, revised and resubmits, and it was kind of awful. So I was like, I'll do it one more time. And I'm not going to hold anything back. And I think that took like two years. Like in the span of that time, I also got a mentor, Laura Elena Donnelly of the um, Amberlo trilogy. She read the book, gave me some really good feedback. I spent the next year and a half in despair and writing alternately between the two. And um, finally, 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 in 2019... I finished it and I crowed about it on Twitter and I guess I should rewind just a little bit to say when I was doing the pitch contests two years before, not only did I get a like from Mary, I also got a comment from Breet over at Orbit and she's like, this is really awesome. I want to see it when you have an agent. And so... Over the couple of years, we sort of, you know, we're following each other, getting to know each other, mostly as writers, because um, she's got stuff coming out from, like, she's had stuff in Uncanny, and we both just really liked each other's short stories. And um, so then when I finished, she's like, oh, you're finished. So about that manuscript, about that agent hunt. And so I start querying again, and Mary is on my list, and she's like, I want this now, give it to me. <laughs> And, um, from that moment, it was, um, very quick. Um, she signed with me and then, uh, Mary did. Uh, and I guess I signed with her, however that's supposed to go. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so then we work on the book together, um, through some more, some more tidying up and then we send it, uh, we sent it out and, Brie was like, yes, I want it. And that was that. It seems like a long time when you say starting in 2016 or 17 or so. But in terms of my general knowledge of how publishing works, that's not as long as it could have been. Well, yeah. And that was actually just from like querying. I actually started the book in 2012. So it's been a minute. Okay. Gotcha. That's that's closer to what I normally hear from people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'm glad you stuck with it because I greatly enjoyed the story. Um, but yeah, so I guess going back a little bit onto your Battlefields blog that we touched on briefly earlier. So you started it back during your MFA, and it seems like you were very fascinated about these war narratives in fiction. And particularly, one of the comments that I took away from that was you think a lot about how science fiction and fantasy are very wedded to war. Um, so I'm curious if you could expand upon that. Yeah. Um, so this will definitely, I definitely talk about it a bit in, um, the essay that's coming out, it'll be with fantasy magazine probably toward the end of April. 
um, okay. unless you are subscribed to it. But um, it's something that I struggle with as someone who, in my own fantasy, I write a lot about war, right? And at the same time, I wonder if we do not write too much about it. And so it's complicated in that way because I feel like I'm feeding into some sort of self-perpetuating monster. But at the same time, I recognize that a lot of us are processing what we're witnessing. And for many of us, especially millennials and younger, if we're American, our country's been at war, you know, for most of our lives. And then like, you know, there are entirely other axes to consider, like, you know, being a black person in America, you've been at war like the entire time. Or if you're from different regions of the world, you've probably also been at at war um, and with much less uh, international sympathy, for example. And so I feel like how a lot of people read war narratives is maybe different than the heroic, usually white character goes and fights hordes of brown bad guys. That narrative doesn't serve us anymore, especially when it's uncomplicated. And so instead of maybe stopping writing war stories, I just, I would really like to think more with more nuance about them, to be more deliberate when we write them. Because I think, you know, as far as why I think we write them, I think part of it is because we're taught that conflict is the mover of stories. And I don't necessarily believe that that is true. I think it is true in the West and story structures in the West, but I don't think it has to be true. And I have a lot of work to do if I want to learn my way out of these kinds of presuppositions. I haven't worked on that yet. Um, And like I said, I do like these stories because I have a lot of stuff to deal with probably. Yeah, so I don't have a complete answer, but I have some theories, I guess. And part of that is, you know, I mean, fantasy is fantasy. And we do have, you know, Mm -hmm. our power fantasies, our adventure fantasies, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, war, as we depict it in stories, it is a fantasy of war. It's very rarely ever the reality, most importantly, because we don't really dig into the consequences. And a consequence-less war is nothing but fantasy. Like, it doesn't exist. So, yeah. I've been having lots of conversations lately, even about how much stories can influence the real world. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because I know there's probably a million different ways you can fall on that argument. Uh, But it seems like if we have a lot of these violent war stories without examining the consequences, that can't have a great impact on the real world, right? Mm Because if people are going to war without thinking about the consequences, you know, that's how we've ended up at war for our entire lives, among other things. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Well, so a lot of this talk is about war because, uh, again, The Unbroken does, I feel like, dive into that sort of conflict. But I know you probably have a lot more nuanced thoughts on this than me since uh, you've actually studied these post-colonial war narratives through an academic lens. So I'm curious, how has that sort of research influenced the story of The Unbroken? I think what mostly influenced is in particularly related to like the war narrative itself, the perspectives I wanted. And originally I actually had one from sort of every group. So we've got Jasha, who is uh, one of the older rebels. 
she had a point of view actually. Um, okay. and so did Cantic, um, for <laughs> not as many, but she had one and then Luca and terrain. And so I, we had, um, different levels, um, different generations, different levels of power. And, um, so that was part of what I wanted out of the unbroken. And so I've narrowed the scope, but I did, well, I hope, <laughs> I hope that I still managed to portray some more of the voices. Um, and I'm hoping to continue to do that in like book two and book three, as we get even more points of views that we haven't seen yet. But it just, it was a little bit too unwieldy for my, my skill level at the time. So, but also, I mean, uh, so much of my research was just about what happened to colonized countries during their occupation, after their occupation. And so I, I say that I was inspired by the relationship between France and North Africa, but it wasn't just, it's not just them. England was a colonial power. You, you can look at South Africa, you can look at Japan. Even uh, it's, if you look at like how settler colonies have impacted the indigenous populations in the U.S. and in Australia and stuff. Yeah, so the consequences of imperialism, colonialism, are so widespread and not just in terms of physical violence. And one of the things that did frustrate me as I started studying more about real-world colonialism was just how little we ever talked about what the exploration of um, fantasy armies and stuff was actually doing. Like, yes, you're the hero, Swordy McSwordsman, but why are you going into this place? Why are you going to take this place's, like, mm -hmm. super magical artifact, like, your dick? <laughs> um, yeah, so... Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate the nuance compared to a lot of the kind of foundational, for me at least, fantasy stories that I read as a kid, because there is a lot of that. <laughs> there really is when you stop and think about it. Yeah, and you just have to, like, we're not encouraged to stop and think about it. And so that was one of the things I wanted to do with The Unbroken. So I'm also interested in how you approached religion in the story. So Balladare, the colonial power, kind of favors logic and reason over religion, even going so far as to have non-religious stand-ins for religious swear words, which I enjoyed. And the Shaylin people are deeply religious. So was there anything in particular you were trying to say about religion here? No, actually. Um, though I will say that the Balladarans only think that their swear words are not religious. Um, but uh, hang out for uh, book two, guys. Yeah, they're, I, I was going to say, those are very specific <laughs> swear choices to not have any meaning. Yeah. But I, I did not actually have anything in particular to say, but I religion has a deep colonial history as well. Um, thinking about missionaries going to spread Christianity all over the world. And so much of that is part of the imperial project and condemning all who are not Christians to heathenry and uncivilizedness. And so honestly, the, the choice with the Baladarans was just because I wanted to see what would happen if it was the opposite. Um, because there was, like spreading Christianity did create an erasure of other 
nations' religions or at least conflict between Christianity and other religions. And so I think that that part is, is certainly preserved in The Unbroken, but I just wanted to see see what could happen. Yeah, and I'm probably getting the name for this wrong, but like the horseshoe theory or whatever, where like you go to the opposite extremes and it's functionally kind of the same thing. Uh, because the end goal, they are still trying to wipe out the religion of the people they're colonizing. Mm-hmm. I have not heard that, but I will go look it up. That makes total okay. sense. I, I'm probably using the wrong terminology here, <laughs> but I know like extreme ideology in either direction. It's more a function of the extremism than the actual ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so Terrain and Luca are pretty much polar opposite characters, at least in some ways. Uh, they do have some things in common as well. So Terrain's always been crushed by the boots of Empire, and Luca's perfectly comfortable wearing those boots and they both are great at making terrible decisions sometimes so how do you balance getting readers invested in these characters without pulling any punches about the consequences of their action to kind of come back to the consequences theme yeah so i mean you know as a writer i think i did what i could but i don't i don't really know if i've if i did get the balance right. I hope I did, but uh, I'd be curious to see what people think, or maybe don't tell me what you think. (laughs) Now that I keep talking about it, don't tell me. Um, so I, I'm satisfied that I did what I wanted, which was to just be really honest about, you know, like we said, like, like war and violence have consequences. And I also, well, just from like a plotting standpoint, I've been very interested in stories that are just a little bit more realistic in terms of human decision-making, which, as we've seen this year, is not excellent. It is not excellent. And <laughs> uh, yes. so if someone says, well, why would she do that? That doesn't make sense. I just like point outside to them like, do you, eh, we don't make sense except for like in our heads, like we can tell ourselves all sorts of things to justify a certain action. Even if that may not actually be the real reason we're doing it, um, we'll do a hell of a lot to justify it when we tell other people. And so I think that's probably what I wanted to achieve with Train and Luca. And I hope that works. But also, you know, I wanted to figure out what they wanted most and what they would be really, really like, horridly reckless to get and then let them be horrid (laughs) yeah it's always interesting to me because i i tend to i don't know if i go so strong to say identify with necessarily but at least really appreciate where characters are coming from if i can understand their motivation and then it's kind of that's a separate axis from what they're willing to do to accomplish those things and how they go about doing that so yeah i guess the messiness that is terrain and luca is interesting to me both from how much are you willing to forgive their actions because you're sympathetic to them as well as how much are what you're doing? Like how much of a good decision maker are they? Like you're saying, uh, like how much if you sat down and analyzed what they do, does it really make sense compared to what they say they want? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I imagine there's no perfect way of doing that. And uh, it, it is, it's balancing lots of things and trying to get the right mix. Yeah. It's also just, you know, experimenting a bit like, <laughs> I write the book one way and I write characters this way and then maybe in another book, another series, maybe I'll try something else. So, Sure. Yeah. 
So I guess uh, kind of last thing about The Unbroken I'm curious is what do you hope people take away from this book other than obviously being a gripping read that they just can't put down? I don't know if I want to say too, too much, but I do want, I do want, you know, I want people to think a bit about, about history, about the systems that they benefit from. And, you know, if they are moved to do research into like the Western Imperial project, that would be cool. Because while, you know, like, while I I was inspired by specifically, uh, initially, the French North African relationship, I, I did it, I did include other places. And so I don't want anyone to think that this is a direct stand in for this is what France did in North Africa, because that's not it. That's not, uh, that's not it at all. And it wouldn't do actual history justice. It wouldn't do like Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians, um, any justice whatsoever. So yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said with raising relevant questions to historical events without necessarily a direct analog to those events. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm always curious to hear from people. Uh, Is there anything you're working on currently that you can tell us about? I would assume possibly the sequel to The Unbroken or the book after that, potentially, depending on how publishing works. (laughs) Um, No, I'm definitely, I'm still working on book two. I'm supposed to be turning that in soon. And I have some small, small inklings of ideas for the series that will come after book three of Magic of the Lost which I, I have this cool little toy. I don't know if you've seen me screaming about it on Twitter, but the story engine like card deck is so cool. And so I was playing with that and that's actually how, uh, kind of how this idea popped up. And you will probably not be surprised to know that it is about war. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> um, and I don't want to say too much about it, except to exonerate myself that I did not pick the characters. One of the cards, I like there's this spread you can do, like think like tarot cards. And there's a spread you can do that's called Circle of Fate to unite two characters in this back and forth kind of conflict. And I was like, you know, if you do follow me on Twitter, then you know that I'm really into enemies to lovers to whatever. Um, (laughs) and, um, and so this, this particular spread is perfect for that, but the two character cards I picked were veteran and warmonger. And I was like, Oh no, what are we going to do? (laughs) So maybe in a few years, I will have some news about that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Uh, Are you planning to keep that in the same general book universe of this Magic of the Lost series? Okay. No, that'll be different, I think. Cool. Well, I will be looking forward to that in (laughs) 2024, 2025, whenever it comes out. Yeah, that sounds right. But yeah, I guess, uh, are there any books you've enjoyed lately that you can recommend? Yes. Only right now. None of you can read them yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> um, so she who became the sun by Shelley Parker Chan and the Jasmine throne by Tasha Suri are coming up. Um, like, uh, I think summer, I think June and July respectively. God, they're so good. Uh, they're very queer war slash revolution stories, just gorgeous, sparkling writing, I think I finished them 
I, I told myself, oh, you'll just treat yourself to like one chapter. You're too busy. Just pace yourself. And then they were just gone. So yep. very delicious. Very just oh, so good. But for something that's a little bit older, I have been going, I've been going back to some books that kind of get me thinking about my own book a little bit harder or get me thinking about craft a bit more. So I've been flipping through uh, The Monster, Baru Cormorant, and, uh, by Seth Dickinson, and um, Winged Histories by Sophia Sabatar. They're both kind of, kind of, uh, I guess you, you could say like touchstone kind of goals a little bit. And, and they're both specifically also war slash colonialism books as well. And uh, so, yeah, I just kind of flip through them when I need a little bit more, oomph, you know. Yeah, I have not read The Winged Histories yet, but you can definitely get a lot of oomph from uh, the Barry Cormorant series. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and uh, it's so funny because I was just talking to uh, E.J. Beaton, author of The Counselor the other day, and oh, she was also recommending... <laughs> yes, I love that book. Uh, but yeah, she was also recommending uh, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan and uh, Tasha Suri's The Jasmine Throne. So mm-hmm. I uh, am anticipating those even more now. Yeah. Um, and I guess finally, uh, something I always like to close out with is just what's something you're excited about right now? <laughs> um, well, so I've been, I've been um, traveling and working on book two, uh, COVID safe traveling, just so we're clear, but I had to get yeah. home. <laughs> and so I haven't been able to play Assassin's Creed Valhalla which uh, I got for Christmas. And so I just cracked that open the other day and am excited to get a little further into it. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm kind of with you in terms of something I'm excited about because I just got my first like game console pretty much ever oh. for Christmas. Uh, and so, yeah, I have some very intriguing games that I'm hoping to have some time to actually play. Uh, so it's yeah. a Nintendo Switch. So I think maybe Breath of oh, the cool. Wild might be worth diving into. Nice, nice. I hear a lot of good things about that and Hades. I hear a lot of good things about Hades. <laughs> well, I think that's everything I have for you, Sheree. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been wonderful. Thank you so, so much for having me. This was fun. This was actually my first uh, my first podcast interview. So, Ooh, oh, well, I'm glad we were able to have the honor of having you on your first podcast interview then. You can find C.L. Clark on Twitter as C underscore L underscore Clark, on Instagram as C.L. Clark Writes, or at their website, clarkwrites.wordpress.com. The Unbroken is one of those brilliant books that delights in breaking you. Yes, the title is kind of a misnomer. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider nominating us for the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. This week is the last week for nominations, which close on Friday, March 19th. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.